Welcome to the next episode of the El Guateque podcast series. On today's episode, we have an amazing conversation with my good friend and University of Minnesota professor of Chicano studies, Dr. Jimmy Patino. Now, the whole point of the conversation is that uh, Jimmy just came out with a new book called Raza Si Migrano, which focuses on the San Diego Chicano activist response to the formation of the Border Patrol and the sort of violence that that uh, agency brought in its early days to immigrant communities in San Diego and Southern California and the way in which Chicano activists responded to that and the sort of transnational dynamics of that. Now, that said, I think for me personally and, and where I get a lot of excitement out of the book is that it really, there's a, aspects of it that really focuses on uh, radical Chicano thinking of the time and it's a sort of it's a sort of group of folks and thinking that I just never had access to as a young person of color uh, in Los Angeles and so, or a young Chicano in Los Angeles. And so I found that aspect of it just really nourishing and important for me and my thinking and my understanding of myself. So I just really think that uh, other folks would have a similar experience. Yeah, so anyway, I hope you enjoy the podcast and check out the book too if you can. All right, bye. So you got a new book out, super exciting. Yes, very exciting. And with with uh, Sean's book out, that's like the fourth book I've been to read in like the last like three months, two months that like I know the people that wrote it. Wow, is that weird? It feels really crazy, man. Cause yeah. It's like I mean, it it changes it changes like what I read because it's like mm-hmm. like not changes what I read in terms of like content, but like it changes how I understand what I'm reading. Sure. Because I know you all, and I know like where you're coming from, and like w- the things that drive you, and it helps actually explain just your day-to-day conversations because it's in right. your head all the time. Yeah. Well, now that the book's out, um, I'm thinking about it as a a way to communicate with folks and like talk yeah. about, have good, just good conversations and dialogues about important stuff. So to see the book is kind of a, so it's cool. You know the people. I think we should like engage authors and writers more yeah. because it like the book is one thing, right? But we keep thinking after the book is out. And then actually learning from the book through other people's reading of it. And so that's really cool that you know the folks. Yeah. Well, and it puts, and it could put the book in, in, in um, intersected dialogues where it wouldn't be otherwise, right? Right. Right. Exactly. I think it's important too. Absolutely. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is the idea that you plan in your book around the way in which the deportation regime, regime was used to sort of keep wages down or suppress wages or to mm-hmm. further exploit workers or, you know, you can always talk about that. It's sure. Cool. No, I think, I mean, that's a concept that I think I'd learned in graduate school and in writing the book, basically that. And so it's also, a few, you know, an important tenet of the book that that immigration policy, a.k.a. the deportation regime, is a system, right? And it's a system largely based on creating a vulnerable workforce, an exploitable workforce. Um, and just, I think, just starting with that basic premise changes the framework in which we talk about immigration. You know, we're not talking about, you know, the right for any sovereign nation to create policy about who can and can't come in. We're talking about a labor system where folks are being recruited in one way or another to come here and creating um mechanisms to keep that population subordinate so is it is it a just to get into a little more detail is about mm-hmm. so it's not about um so it's recruiting and then disposing right so it's recruiting folks to work and then getting rid of them when they're inconvenient or when 
sure using the tentacles of the state to do so yeah i mean that's part of it i think to create so to create so-called quote-unquote illegal aliens and i say that term in in relationship to the bureaucratic like official way right. the government has used it um it's like it's actual it's an actual category mm. that you know the government uses and like um um you know is used to describe this this uh, group of people that are you know undocumented folks and so yeah by being undocumented they're disposable right if for whatever reason um the state decides that they need to leave they can legally there's legal mechanisms for them to dispose of them um, but i think on a day-to-day basis like that's just a threat mm-hmm. right like the threat of that is what mm-hmm. makes this population um vulnerable and subordinated well the threat and then the a threat the the weight of a threat is related to the reality of that threat coming to bear sure right? and so it's also just the relationship between the actual deportations happening right 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 so the I mean, yeah, deportations undoubtedly happen, but I think it's the kind of normalized way that that's just part of life. That's just part of, that's a natural kind of response to immigration is right. to deem this group of people, um, you know, disposable or, you know, uh, you know, they have to be apprehended. They, they can or have to be apprehended and criminal, well, criminalized. That criminalized, right, because yeah. they deserve it, right, because they did this something wrong. And even when you have, I think in your book you point out too, even when they have like a quasi-legal status like the Brasero program, there's mm-hmm. still there's still ways in which corporations or entities are getting around that and sustaining this like suppressed, mm-hmm. you know, low-paid, right. vulnerable workforce. Right, right. And defying that law in, some, in a lot of ways too. Right, yeah, no, the Brasero program moment really showed the ways that it's a it's a system right that immigration and cre- that illegality is produced right and is deliberately created because and businesses want that right right so like there was this legal mechanism where the mexican state and the u.s state created this agreement to ha- to legitimate to legitimately send mexican workers to the u.s um and then they return to mexico when they're done with their contracts and employers, and this isn't my work, this is other work right. in Chicano history and immigration history, but um, I use it in the book, of course, because employers preferred undocumented, informal ways of employing folks um, because the Bracero program didn't have to... The, the Bracero program uh, required a minimum wage. It required certain safety precautions and right. certain housing and, you know, basically rights, human rights, and, like... Um, a lot of employers preferred to hire undocumented folks instead. So the undocumented population exploded during when the Bracero program was in place. And I, and I think the, the concerning thing now for, for undocumented folks is you, you don't have a dynamic where folks are doing agricultural work, with this, which is threatening and difficult in its own respects. Mm-hmm. But now you're having more undocumented folks, at least in the Midwest near us, that are doing meatpacking work. Mm-hmm. And again, like the, the sort of tone that you get from reading about it is that as you're describing, they want folks that that basically aren't el- eligible for the protections that the even low protections that U.S. citizens get and work meat we, we mm-hmm. packing plants so that mm-hmm. when they lose an arm or something, there really is no repercussion or accountability. Right, right, exactly. Um, no, and that's why. So I think, I mean, one of the premises of the book, I think, or some an idea the book puts out there is to challenge this idea that the immigration system is broken. 
it's not broken. It works exactly as it's meant to work. Right. It creates wow, yeah. so-called illegal people mm. in order to create a vulnerable workforce that businesses have been relying on since, you know, the Border Patrol was created in the 1920s. Um, and like you're mentioning, the different industries that undocumented folks are kind of the bedrock for. Um, so the meatpacking industry, you know, kind of uh, factory work like that. Um, I think it's expanded. It, I guess its base has been in agriculture yeah. uh, throughout the 20th century, but um, mm, yeah. now it's so, you know, it's so thoroughly, you know, in 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 several industries: uh, the tourist industry, the restaurant industry, um, you know, hotels, uh, uh, and in addition to yeah, factory work, meat packing. Um, uh, so it's expanded. Basically, we're more reliant on the, the the U.S. economy is more reliant on immigrant labor now than it was in the you know a hundred years ago when my book starts. Yeah, and I think just thinking out loud, I think I think one can make an argument that part of part of the way in which immigrant folks are finding themselves in more manufacturing and industry work is the decline of unionized of, of those jobs being protected by unions and union contracts and right. the decimation of unions generally. Right, right, which has been. So yeah, so corresponding with the rise of, of using undocumented labor in industry was the decline of unions mm. um, starting post-1950s, right? I think in the 1950s, yeah, so it starts what, almost the American workforce, maybe close to half are in unions. Yeah. And now it's around, what, less than 15%? Yeah, it's like below 10%. In private sector, it's worse. Public sector is higher. Right. That's why they take right. public sector so much, right? Right, exactly. That was, was one of the last remnants the last bastions of it mm. and um mm. so i think for labor that has been so the issue with labor has been to confuse um that decline and the correspondence of hiring undocumented folks to become anti-immigrant themselves right, right. the labor move you know, of course the labor movement in the u.s has in some sectors been vehemently anti-immigrant right intensely nativist yeah right and for the reason that and I was just telling, I was just, I just uh, talked to a high school class this morning about the book and um, was telling them about um, Cesar Chavez. And, you know, the question was, you know, we learn about Cesar Chavez and, and that's the only Latino we learn about in history, mm -hmm. pretty much. Do you I, have I, we get a day off in California. Right. That's what I remind them. They're like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Um, but they're also like, who else was there? What other people? And, um, you know, putting one prominent historical figure up is hides others right and like but i was telling him about the real problem that he had that chavez had in trying to be on strike as farm workers to pressure bosses to give wage increases and other things and the bosses would hire strike breakers who are largely immigrants many of them undocumented and the ufw their policy in the 70s was to call the border patrol to remove those strike breakers so they could win their strikes that's, and that's so that's a real problem. There is a correspondence between the use of immigrant labor and the decline in unions. Right. Um, but the challenge has been, I think this is where the book is also useful, is to show that there was a debate about that. Not, every, not everybody in the, the Chicano movement and, you know, on the left in the U.S. agreed with that position that Chavez had. So, so Chavez's position really reflects the larger AFL-CIO's position right. in the 70s, too. Right. Um, that starts to shift later when immigrant it becomes evident that immigrant workers are so, you know, prominent in, in these industries and really 
lead a resurgence of labor by the 90s. Right. Um, As labor becomes more adaptive to them. Right. And not, in, not, right. not in defiance towards. Right. But I think it's worth repeating that, like, we have to be really clear about the fact that Chavez was very anti-immigrant and, and was willing and as a policy, as you described, would mm-hmm. call the border patrol and what that means for us as Chicano folks in the United States and what that means for our solidarity with our immigrant brothers and sisters and, right. you know, gender non-conforming folks as well. Right. Absolutely. And so that, yeah, we can't, we can't assume that there's some sort of solidarity between, you know, Latinos and Latinas with U.S. citizenship and Latino immigrants. That has to be built. It has to be ideologically and conceptually built. Um, because, yeah, there's, been, there's a long history of, like, conflict between those two communities and, and, and real material kind of competition. Right. I mean, it, again, it was a real problem that undocumented immigrants were breaking farm worker strikes. The solution for Chavez was to remove them. The solution for someone like Bert Corona and, and, and Herman Baca were to organize them. Right incorporate them into the union extend the organizing right they're not they're not the enemy the 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 bosses are right yeah i mean i just i think kind of what you're describing too flips so it it flips the idea of if you're if you're white and you're you know working a job that doesn't pay much and you buy into this idea that immigrants are taking your jobs away I mean, kind of what you're describing and what's happening is, is in reality, what's taking your jobs away is a bunch of capitalists that mm-hmm. are intentionally creating structures that drop wages, that create right. worse jobs. <laughs> right. Right. And also, like, being able to do that and not be accountable to it because, say, the white worker who loses his job, uses loses their unionized job, is, in, is blaming the immigrant that took it rather than the 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 capitalist structure that created that circumstance and their local representative that just sold them out and you know right. all these other layers right right and we don't get the narrative at all right it just doesn't exist out there right right no what's coming to mind is that moving to minnesota from california and then texas before like a lot of the folks who fix the road like the constructions in the streets and whatnot mm-hmm. they're white yeah and that's really weird mm. to me and in, in the southwest they're all most of them are Mexican. Yeah, I hear, and black. About, I hear about like white day laborers in Iowa, and I was like, "What? Right? They're right. not like people I could talk to in Spanish, <laughs> right? What is this? Right? And so it makes me think, and you know, maybe you know this, but they're they're unionized. Hmm. Those are good jobs. Yeah, right, right, um, right. And maybe they're not in places like Texas, um, and they're able to employ folks who are not unionized, and they tend to be yeah, because worse laws. Latinos. There's worse laws in Texas. There's more hostile laws in Texas right. than unions. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, right to work state. Right, right, right. Um, I think the other the other thing that like in my reporting on on prisons and jails and when you look at prison labor, there's a significant decline in wages, as the as as you are, there's a significant decline in wages from like two dollars to twenty five cents an hour as you're increase increasing the incarceration rates for Black folks in Minnesota, mm-hmm. and you're also starting to increase just prisons generally. Mm-hmm. You know, so where where is that parallel moment for the deportation regime regime where you transition from just because I remember my father telling me those all the time where he crossed the border, get arrested, deported, jump you know dropped mm-hmm. out, and went back and forth like seven times. There was no mm-hmm. preponderance that he'd be in custody for a for a extended period of time. Right. But where does it start shifting where you actually start expanding the the carceral state mm-hmm. uh, through immigrant folks or undocumented immigrant folks or as the government describes illegal aliens? Right. Um... Yeah, that's a good question. I think 
So one way I'll answer is I think anecdotally, like just through a few pieces of archival evidence that I found in terms of what were the concerns for activists, that you see some correspondence around the treatment of immigrant detainees by the mid-70s. Mm. Um, it lines up. That becomes a concern, oh. right? And bef- during that time and definitely before that, um, the policy was to, when someone got apprehended, when an undocumented migrant got apprehended, particularly a Mexican immigrant, um, uh, it, it wasn't really a deportation because a deportation is a legal process that requires like a hearing and all these things. It was a voluntary departure, mm. which they, you know, wasn't voluntary, but they, the way they were made to sign a paper right. basically that, that they, they voluntarily and they probably didn't fully understand right. or didn't have much of a choice and they'd drop them off in Tijuana or Tecate or whatever and they'd be back. They'd often come back really quickly. That's what my dad was doing then. Right, right. right. And so like, that was, I, I remember stories too of just people making up crazy names like Donald Duck and stuff. Cause, sure. Because nobody right. cared. They were just trying to document, get popped off, and come back over. Right. The sense I get is that migrants didn't care and neither did the Border Patrol. Right. They were just, you know, that was their job to and, drop folks off on the other side. And there wasn't any overarching xenophobia at a national level to like support the expansion of those systems. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And of course, that xenophobia begins creeping up in the 70s and by the end of the 70s. Um, it's it's an it's a national debate. Um, but just going back to that or, uh, anecdotal evidence you mentioned. Right, right. No, I just remember um, you know the the committee on Chicano rights, the organization that's featured in the book or one of them. Um, yeah, there's just letters and correspondence about this detention center somewhere in South San Diego County near the border and um, how folks are not being fed, hmm. you know, enough or an inferior kind of, you know, uh, unsanitary kind of conditions. Um, children being held. I remember that there was there was a report of children being held there, and how that was inhumane and problematic. And mm. to me, that's like knowing you know, knowing what where we are now in terms of detention centers. That was probably an indication of you know, the beginnings of, of detaining people rather than just throwing them back. Mm, detaining families and children. Right, right. And, mm. um, yeah, so that so it's just anecdotal. I, I, you know, I, I don't go into depth with that. That is more research that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. I think there are pieces there that we could ask more questions in terms of who was detaining them, right? Were these, like, do we see private kind of yeah. companies coming in and doing that kind of work or do we see the amount of time they're being detained right how long are they being detained yeah. you know what kind of and, and and the way you're thinking about it in terms of like economics like who's benefiting mm-hmm. of transporting them of detaining them of feeding them of uh, all these things and like so i think that's one piece i think with the increase in migration through the 70s into the 80s there were just more people detained or more people apprehended and therefore, folks started being detained. I think the other part of the, of the question is when when immigration becomes a national debate in the Jimmy Carter administration, um, and then and then forever after. Give me some right? years, Jimmy Carter. Uh, Seventy six right. to, to to eighty. So by the late seventies, um, it's a national concern now. Um, and we're also seeing the beginnings of uh, tough on crime discourse, right. and the minimum sentencing law discourse. Right. 
So it just seems like there's a parallel between how U.S. citizens, whatever that might mean, are being treated and how undocumented folks are being treated. Right. In terms of their presence and, and the expansion of the carceral state. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, and, yeah. And just now there, I mean, now over the last like year and a half or two years, you're starting to see more lawsuits about undocumented folks uh, in private prisons being expected to work and working for like free or like 10 cents an hour or some crazy stuff. Right. And you're seeing some of that circulate a little bit too. I think the geo group in particular. Right. So that now that like, it just seems like now that the undocumented population is so large in custody that they're being, mm -hmm. they're being treated the same way at least U.S. citizen folks are while they're in custody mm -hmm. in terms of their relationship to labor and wages. Right. Now, I'm thinking of uh, Ruth Gilmore's book, Golden Gulag, which is about the growth of the uh, prison you know, regime in, in California. And she argues that prisons were a, a social response to basically unemployment. Mm -hmm. um, it was prisons were a, a publicly funded area where the answer to unemployment, people could be housed in, in these, not necessarily even to work, just to house them. Yeah. Um, and that's that's occurring you know, in the seventies and into the eighties. So that's parallel to the, this mm. moment. Mm. Um, in Minnesota, the prisons expanded when they started shutting down state hospitals. Mm -hmm. That was actually, they actually right. shifted workers from one institution to the other. Right, right, right. When is that? Uh, yeah, around the same time, seventies, seventies and eighties. Yeah. So, so small towns that have a state hospital. Mm -hmm. They're like, we're going to be in prison. Right. So I'm thinking to the eighties too, when the Reagan administration kind of defunds a lot of these mm -hmm. places to, you know, medical assistance and other kinds of assistance for homeless folks. And like, um, yeah, the prisons become a, a response to a social problem. Where can we house or put these people? Mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, and on the other hand, I'm thinking of um, uh, a scholar named Jordan Camp uh, wrote about um, basically the prison regime as a response to black power yeah, and like radicalism certain forms of radicalism, that it was also a disciplinary mechanism. Well, and you, and you see that in the in, in the confines of a prison system when they start, when you when the correctional officers, wardens, whatever, start restricting mm -hmm. access to educational materials, and they start really censoring mm -hmm. what people are reading as a response to independent black organizing, radical organizing. Right. They were, in the in custody, were just largely rooted out of, like, educating one another. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, it's punishment. Okay. It's punishment not just for the individual. It's a it's a message to the rest of us that like if you mm -hmm. align yourselves with some thinking that isn't is in conflict with the state, this is where you end up. Sure, sure, it's right. A clear, it's a clear message. Sure, right. right. No, and it, it it's not a coincidence. It happens after the kind of radical challenges of the nineteen sixties and seventies. Hmm. I mean, one of one of the things that I really enjoy about your book. Um, that it's still, it's still sort of like, still sort of dancing around with in my head, but the basic idea that as a, as a Chicano growing up in LA, um, I just never really identified strongly with the way in which the Chicano movement or Chicano thinking was represented to me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, being in college, going to a little private school, it was like immediately I was told that I needed to study Chicano studies and I needed to become like a social worker, a lawyer, a doctor. Okay. And that... And then a lot of groups on campus too, where they weren't like the like the seventies Metchauer Brown Berets. They were very much like the professional Hispanic associations, things like that. Okay. Like celebration of heritage rather than celebration of defiance. 
Uh-huh. And I think what I appreciated about your book is there, I think one of the underlying tones in it is, is the way in which there is a, there's a debate and dialogue over what it is, what it means to be a Chicano. And there's like a, you know, to mm-hmm. speak really uh, generally, mm-hmm. there's a, a left flank that has a socialist Marxist orientation that gets subsumed by a flank that wants to engage in the political operations of the state mm-hmm. and wants to get close to institutions to make change that way. And to to finally read that there was there was a broader radical tradition in Chicano thinking helped me feel more identified with Chicano being a Chicano generally. So it helped at least for me personally, sure. it helped resolve a lot of like tension and and sort of ambivalence I had about mm-hmm. who I am as a Chicano. Right. No, that's interesting. So I think um, well, one, I'm glad that that. That there's a tradition, there's an organizing tradition in a politic, a Chicano politics that yeah. we can trace, right? A radical tradition. Um, that's one. The first chapter, that basically goes from the '30s to the '60s, and the rest of the book goes from the '60s to the '80s. Is really important just to show that kind of longer line of that longer durée of um, of organizing as you know being Chicano meant organizing with fellow Mexicanos that were immigrants. Um, it meant engaging with labor and like, um, in some cases, gender justice and tying those things together in relationship. And it was cross-racial in terms of identifying with other working people in the United States, um, tying to Mexico too, in some ways, and maybe even larger Latin America. And, and it defines yeah. toward elected officials that were Chicano that were right. voting against our interests. Right. And right. accountability there too. Sure. Absolutely. Um. So yeah, that that's definitely in the book. I'm still thinking through. Well, I'm thinking through our different experience too, as a Chicano kid, um, growing up who grew up in the Houston suburb, and then went to college. Like I had to seek out, like mm. like I wasn't bombarded with like Mecha, <laughs> Mecha, uh, yeah. and in fact, right. the, it was the, what was most apparent. Where yeah, it was the Hispanic professional organization, this or that. Um, but I found Mecha, mm-hmm. and like. Um, and it was just a small cadre of, you know, kind of radical Chicano kids. And that's where I first engaged like immigrant rights and, uh, anti-police brutality stuff and like that kind of activism. So, um, I don't know, those different stories are interesting, but I think, um, yeah, I mean, Mecha is like a remnant of the Chicano movement. So, um. Well, just thinking back to that period in my life where there was like a lot, there was some hostility towards me as a brown person because I wouldn't do brown people things, and right. I didn't, I didn't realize. I mean, you know, they were describing me as like a sellout or whitewashed or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. exactly realize what I was experiencing until like, not necessarily because I read your book, but like I think that helped me just sort of come to terms with the fact that like I wasn't, I wasn't resistant because I was trying to become white. I was resistant because it wasn't not that it wasn't radical enough, but it didn't answer. These fundamental questions I had about like why we're being so destroyed, why we're, mm-hmm. why there's so much violence towards us, mm-hmm. like those those sort of groups weren't answering that for me. Why are my parents being harmed? Like why did my dad have to do these things? Why right. did my mom suffer so much? Like I needed right. answers to that and I wasn't getting it, and I was just desperately trying to find spaces that would give that to me. So it sounds like a an ethnic politics like empty of. Right. Like material intersectional analysis. Lens, yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, like being 19 and not knowing how to just say that yeah. sentence, right? Right, right, right. right, right. No, just, <laughs> just, like, just feeling it out. Well, these um, white people are saying radical things. So I'll talk to them for a while. But then also appreciating that they're, I can't really trust them either. Right. 
right? Yeah. So, I mean, thinking about the book, yeah, to lay out like that the Chicano movement wasn't one homogeneous thing, that there were an array of like ideological approaches and, you know, different kind of solutions to problems. Um, I think it's really important to show that, yeah, being Chicano or whatever is not, it's not one thing, right? To escape identity politics, like, um, like your identity doesn't, define your politics that your politics should define your identity mm. right that's a george lipsitz quote um but um that, i think that's important to think about um because when it becomes it becomes very rigid when yeah. we're like chicanos are supposed to do this yeah, and yeah, like yeah. that's a that's something we always have to navigate as kind of you know oppressed folks of color in the society is that our, our nationalist kind of um Lines of thought, I think. Like, okay, we gotta put these things on silent. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> text. Uh, <laughs> Look at the same text, so <laughs> pop uh, it off at the same time. <laughs> um, no, I think yeah. Well, because you just nationalism, yeah, navigating nationalism. On the one hand, we gotta like talk about how our shared experience with race, you know, kind of leads us to come together and try to solve those problems. But at the same time, that doesn't define shouldn't define what the way we're supposed to do it well and then if you if you're if you're aligning any sort of orthodoxy whether it's like a, mm-hmm. a nationalist racial racialized orthodoxy right you're giving up so much power right you're giving up your critical lens you're giving up your your sense of discovery your sense of like finding materials that mm-hmm. sort of encourage or discourage or complicate what you're trying to think about or what your what your soul is trying to get you to like come to terms with or mm-hmm. explore right right and i think that's what i was always feeling back then Right. I was like, these aren't the questions I want answered. And especially because I had such a strong connection at that time, at least, to Latin America and Latin America generally. Mm-hmm. And it, the the Chicano experience that I was being um, brought into was very centered in the United States and very centered on like what brown people are doing right. in the United States, which is important. But I want to think about a diaspora. I want to think about what my relationship is to, at that time, Chavez and what's going on in Guatemala and... Lula in Brazil, right? Mm-hmm. I want to mm-hmm. think about what my relationship is to that. Right, right. No, and I think it's important that there's a yeah, there's a history of that. Like being Chicano isn't being solely focused on the concerns of Mexican Americans in the United States. Uh, I think for me, like joining a Chicano nationalist group like Mecha was affirming because I'm a you know I I'm a uh, multi generational Mexican American. Like I I don't speak fluid Spanish. Uh, I grew up in the suburbs around a lot of white folks. Um, and so that was affirming in some ways. But at the same time, I did keep a critical lens in terms of like, as an English speaking, you know, predominantly English speaking Chicano, a lot of my education around like race in the United States came from the black community. Mm. And so I always had this relationship with it through hip hop or culture or just, you know, being from South Tech, from Southeast Texas um, that I brought with me and that any Chicano kind of nationalist position that didn't identify cross ethnic relationships wasn't for me so Mm -hmm. that's that's i came in with that politics where i could be i was critical in that way of a really rigid nationalism that didn't allow us to see those connections because that's how i understand the world um and i guess the the discursive at least fixation on the notion of brown also just dismisses and leans into a certain anti-blackness that's that's endemic and in our communities right 
Absolutely. Um, and I saw that too and internally within family and just right. in a growing up in a city that was black, brown, and, and white primarily. There's a lot of Asian folks too that came through um, by the late 20th century. But yeah, um, so I hope I brought that to the book too in terms of like, so the transnational connections you're suggesting with Latin America, that there was a Chicano politics that articulated connections with the mm -hmm. wider world, um, along with kind of in dialogue with the history of Asian exclusion, the history of um, enslavement and blackness, right? That there was a relationship in the Chicano movement with all those things. Um, where I found it, you know, and it, there, were, it was, there were limits to that too. But where I found it, I thought it was important to articulate it and kind of trace it. Um, and one kind of natural place where the Chicano movement engaged, Mexico at least, was migrants. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, migrants forced Chicanos to mm -hmm. to be put in a position like, oh, what is our relationship to Mexico? And I think, and I also think, you know, I think there's a there's a danger in overstating how much the Chicano movement as a whole was really embracing that because I think there's a there's a certain particularity in the fact that like this is in San Diego, right? You're like minutes from the border. And you have right. to really confront that. And you right. can't just like keep ignoring it in the ways that I think that happens farther north. Right. Or farther farther from the border. And even if it's a transnational um, consciousness, it only relates to northern Mexico. It doesn't go farther south into the indigenous communities of Chiapas and sure. Oaxaca or even into, I mean, certainly not into Guatemala or wherever else. And you just don't have as many Guatemalans, so there's that. But, sure. You know what I mean? There's a certain, there's this particularity of geography that informs that too. Oh, absolutely. I no, I think, yeah, that one point of the book is what San Diego, what Chicano politics in San Diego showed us about the immigration issue and about its connection to Mexico. But I think something else to say about San Diego is like, when we think of San Diego and the Chicano movement, I think a lot of people think of Chicano Park, mm -hmm. like the, you know, the creation of Barrio this park Logan. Barrio, in Barrio Logan, the largest Mexican-American, you know, neighborhood there, and basically just taking over this piece of land where the government promised to make a park and they didn't and they created it and they wrote you know um, painted all these murals on it and it's this really kind of important site of community and whatnot but uh, an artist a muralist named um, well an artist more generally named David Avalos was in the committee on Chicano rights and early on in my project I dialogued with him over email um, about about that and his connection to immigrant rights and immigration. And he pointed out that he's like, actually, you know, Chicano Park was founded, what, 1970, 70, 71, 72? He's like, a, a mural, out of all those murals, out of all those images, not one depicted immigrants until the late 1970s. Mm. And a white guy, Michael Schnorr, did it. Oh, shit. Um, so there's this little, huh. there's this little piece that's it's called The Immigrant Worker. And it's this, and he's, I think it's actually like depicting an Italian immigrant worker. <laughs> like in Italy, there was some must sort of southern, weird connection there. Southern Italian. Right. It's a little darker. Um, blend in. Um, but the fact that yeah. almost a decade went by with this kind of very important kind of Chicano movement oriented politics on on these murals and didn't depict the immigrant kind of rights issue tells us a little bit about yeah, like yeah. the limits of or the inability or for whatever reason for Chicano movement and the Chicano nationalism to address immigration head on, 
Right. Well, and just, just, I mean, you know, you mentioned that you're multi-generational, but you know, for, from my experience, like my parents are the immigrants and, mm-hmm. and it, it was just, it continues to be confounding. And I, I don't, maybe I should sit and think about this more, write about it more, but like it, the hostility towards immigrants from first generation kids, right. And mm-hmm. from essentially their parents and, you know, there's, you can armchair psychology that and about your relationship to your parent, but at least in, in where I grew up in Montebello, we had a lot of recent immigrant folks and increasingly folks from Central America and you would hear the middle class, you know, brown <clears> kids, <throat> perhaps poor kids like me, refer to those folks as wetbacks and you operation right. operationalize that language even though mm-hmm. they were at most second a generation removed from that immigrant narrative or immigrant experience. Right. And they all spoke Spanish in some way or another, like we all did in one way or another. Right. And where how that hostility just like develops as a part of US culture and as a part of trying to succeed, as a part of trying to become middle class. I mean, there's mm-hmm. other factors that mm-hmm. I don't know that I've really thought about that much yet. No, I think so what I think of is like yeah, that's a trip, right? For the kids of immigrants to disconnect with immigrant kids. Right. Even though they're the children of immigrants. So, um, my advisor, David Gutierrez, wrote a book called Walls and Mirrors, which is about Mexican-Americans and Mexican-immigrant mm-hmm. relationships, relations, right? And I remember another scholar, George Lipsis, describing that book as how, how did a system create such a circumstance where generations of Mexican-origin people disconnected with people very much like them? Like, what is that? And, and I think a lot of the answer is nationalism, right? Like... The, the process of acculturating a group of folks to identifying more as American and seeing that as contradictory to being Mexican. And the pressure and, and some levels from parents to acculturate in order to succeed at least materially. Right. Right. So the same immigrant parents are telling them, like, go be white. Just, right. Just, and they're not saying that, obviously. Right, but right, like, right. That is, right. That but is, do well. And that that is know. the consequence. Right, right. And so um, in the book, another organization, CASA, which was basically the Center for Autonomous Action, Autonomous Social Action, um, was a Chicano movement organization that was mainly staffed by Chicanos, by Mexican-Americans, but created to service undocumented folks, with mainly with legal services mm-hmm. and, and some other social services and other things. Um, but the way I write about it in the book is that what that space did was, sure, Chicanos were helping immigrants, right? I, I argue that it's the other way around, too. It was immigrants who were um, reminding and challenging Mexican-Americans to, to rethink their connection to migration. Mm, mm-hmm. So, for example, one of the uh, activists and workers there was a woman named Norma Cáceres. And, you know, after talking about Casa, I talked about her own personal life and, um, come you know, come to find out, her um, father was deported, I believe, mm. um, a generation before, right before she was born, because he was organizing mine workers. Mm. Um, her her partner Roger Casares was also a casa worker, and he had a similar story about deportation. So it turns out many of the Chicano, you know, U.S. born Mexican Americans who were staffing casa and were part of the foundational movement, leaders, yeah. Um, had connections to immigration. Mm-hmm. Direct, you know, uh, Charlie Vasquez was another leader. I think his mother was deported at some right. point. He told the story. Own historical experience. Right, but that that was hidden until the movement created this pride about being Mexican one, mm. and then immigrants, and then you actually start engaging immigrants themselves, who are, you know, a constant reminder 
about your relationship to that process because they're also helping the immigrants like not get deported and reunite with families and all these things so um so that's kind of the ideological work that the movement did um at least in some sectors was mm. to dislodge this idea that i'm i'm american and you're mexican and see like spaces of unity because because even like the language uses and, and if someone's feeling hostile towards immigrants the language that they'll tend to at least in my experience lean into is like this language of like being dirty right. language of being unkempt uncivilized like people just exactly. go into that real hard right right i know one of my interviews uh, Augie Barreño, another person who was in casa he was really blunt and he was like getting invited to chicano movement events to be in mecha he was like, we don't want to fuck with that Tijuanero shit. Mm-hmm. You know, like basically anything Mexican was like, we don't fuck with that. That's not us. That's not what we do. And then he's, he was even growing up in the San Diego area. They would go to Tijuana to party and they'd fight. Mm-hmm. They'd fight Mexicans. They'd fight Tijuaneros because they weren't them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was what he knew up to that point. Um, you know, he said he had cousins in Tijuana. He was just ashamed of them. Didn't want to visit them and didn't want to hang out with them and like. So that was the context growing up. So it took the movement to create the space for him to rethink that. And that actually, oh, we, that's nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, there's this whole system that pits us against each other in the first mm-hmm. place. And like, so that's a really important, like, you know, organization and chapter in the book where I kind of explore that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I also think about like, um, I mean, there's a, there's a complication, too, uh, as you get closer to NAFTA, where generation, generationally, in terms of migrants from Mexico, you're you're moving from northern Mexican, taller, whiter folks to, mm-hmm. to indigenous folks from the south that are shorter, darker, sometimes not even speaking Spanish. And the way in which the what's made visible is the intense anti-indigenousness right. within Mexico and within our consciousness as well, that... Mm-hmm. goes unchallenged until it finds that challenge in small community, dense community in Los Angeles, having to face one another and confront one another. Right, right. No, I think that's an important direction. I think, like, Latino scholarship is going is to, you know, remember that Mexico has its own race system mm-hmm. and that, you know, these calls for solidarity and whatnot have to grapple with that. Um, so I'm thinking of a book, uh, Defiant Braceros, by Mireya Losa, that identifies that there were indigenous braceros, and that then she was able to uncover their experiences as both margin already marginalized in Mexico, marginalized right. in relationship to their mestizo Mexican counterparts, and then in the United States, you know, subject to you know the white supremacist context. So like that, that's a good example of like how to navigate that in a more nuanced way. Because otherwise we just group everybody as Mexican, as, right. as if that's. And again, we're back to this problem where um, we're automatically assuming solidarity instead of noting like the fault lines that are instead we have of, to work through. Instead of building it, right? Instead of building it, exactly. No, it's just like the yeah, the fallacy or the imprecision of assuming a national identity from mm-hmm. disparate people, right? even like even I you know even within like if you think about like food in Mexico like the culinary traditions in Mexico like they're they are distinct depending on where you're from right there's a sure. there's a different types of spices different types of proteins that are used mm-hmm. varying levels of chocolate and depending on where you are the the presence of mariscos right it absolutely is not one thing 
you know, <laughs> like the right. slang traditions. And I never ate pozole before until I went to California. <laughs> I don't know. I, tinga I ate menudo in Texas. Until my sister got married to a guard from Michoacan. I was like, oh, tinga. Ooh, that's fun. Right. I never even heard of that until like last year or something. Or just the, 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 <laughs> and the reality that there were more black black African slaves in oh, yeah. Latin America than there were in the U.S. Right. You know, so if we're thinking about, um, I don't know, if we're thinking about like blackness in the Americas, a lot of it's located in Latin America. Absolutely. Right. Um, no, and I'm thinking, well, I think in terms of nationalism, like how it's important to remember that, um, well, I think you conjured Benedict Anderson and the idea that like, you know, nationalism is something that's invented. Right. It's something that's like fairly, a fairly recent kind of way of organizing society. Um, he, he argues that it's in relationship to the printing press mm -hmm. where you, you need a way to communicate to masses of people that you are indeed French or American or... And just the, the simplicity of creating a common language. Right. Right. Like you needed that, especially like in, in a very unsettled Spain, for example. Or, right. You know. Right. And ultimately you're trying to bring people who are really different mm -hmm. together and convince them that they have more in common than they don't. Yeah. Um, so then that's a common, that's a constant process. Americans always need to be reminded that they are Americans yeah. and that there are those in society that aren't as convinced because of the way that they're treated. And so I think that's, that's part of the book too, in terms of how, hmm. um, marginalizing and like creating a deportation regime where these people are inherently not allowed into citizenship to American citizenship was a way to kind of convince other Americans around notions of whiteness and difference that you're American, right? But the what it created also was this kind of critical response to that, you know, by deeming a population disposable and removable and, you know, ineligible for participation in society, you create a critical, you know, community of folks that have a certain outlook on the society that's you know, they, they, they've envisioned something else. They envision alternatives to that. Well, that's the tricky thing. I mean, it's where you're getting at overall is that ineligible, a group of people that's ineligible but necessary. Right. Yeah. Right. No, that ties us to slavery. Right. And other forms of, right. of exploited labor. Right. Yeah. So, like, there's to create kind of a representative democracy. There have always been non-citizens present in those societies. Sustaining those societies. Right. Right. So from we can in the U.S. case, yeah, we can talk about the enslaved population. They were not citizens, but they were fully present and func you know, made the society functional. Um, and so I, I locate that to, you know, coolies, you know, Asian exclusion, where mm -hmm. certain Asian migrants were laborers and recruited here to work here, but deemed ineligible for naturalizing as citizens, um, to undocumented migrants from Mexico or wherever. Those are that's the same history. Mm -hmm. In terms of, there's always been a presence of non-citizen people who were here, like you're saying, who who were necessary. And so again, back to this, the regime is a system that creates and maintains this hierarchical system. So where citizenship is actually a hierarchy, 
mm-hmm. rather than mm. that challenges the narrative of civil rights. Like our goal is to authenticate our citizenship. Mm-hmm. Actually, that's investing in a hierarchical system. That's, ena- that's enabling the right. Yeah, because there's, there's there has to be a non-citizen for there to be a citizen. Yeah, the absence of one is the resolution of the other. Right. Right. Damn. Like May Night. Uh, an author writes in Impossible Subjects her book um, Illegal Immigration and the Making of Modern America she, she identifies it as fundamentally center the, the presence of so-called illegal folks is, is, cent- is central to what a U.S. citizen is because you know what it's not well I, th- I think you just made a really provocative statement right like the the fighting for civil rights means the I mean I'm kind of just Riffing off that, the fight, sure. the, the the fight for civil rights means the further denial of rights to the necessary non-citizen folks. Right. Is that is that fair to say? I think there are remunitions of the civil rights movement that the goal is citizenship, mm-hmm. and so implicitly or, that means or enhanced citizenship, or, right? Or, or enhanced or authenticated citizenship, right? Maybe like Mexican Americans have had citizenship, African Americans have had citizenship, it just wasn't practiced, right? So civil rights, one definition of civil rights, just authenticate the treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, or authenticate the 14th, 15th, 16th Amendment, and we're we're good. But really, if we look at that, that doesn't address the problem of non-citizens, then it's you know, a limited, it's reformist. It's not, Yeah. it's, it's just, in, it's including more people in this hierarchical system rather than eliminating the hierarchy, right? So I think that's what Chicano movement activists were like grappling with. That's why it was so important uh, to think about undocumented migrants because there is a history in the Mexican-American community where, you know, we think of Lulag, we think of Cesar Chavez or whoever where, yeah, we're not them. Right. We're not undocumented. We came here the right way. Right. Or we were here first, and so we were already here, so it's not our, you know, we're not doing it this way. And we're doing good work, and we're not getting in trouble, and that kind of discourse, right. too. Right? So but please I, include us. Right. You know, please uh, authenticate our citizenship. We were, you know, we, we have papers. Please basically. include us on your terms. Right. Right. Um, so I think it becomes radical in some ways and to, to include undocumented folks and premise their voices. Mm-hmm. Because then you're challenging a system. Yeah, um, you're holding a systemic analysis and and right. placing a solution against a system. Right, right. Hmm. You're you're challenging this citizen over non-citizen hierarchy that exists in society. And we'll read the book to see how they <laughs> <laughs> is that your little <laughs> how they like your cliffhanger propose solutions to it. <laughs> Because we're still there. We're, we're still, still there. We're still man. trying to figure it we're out. We're still there. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, it, and it's and it's. I think um, and any attempt in solidarity with our immigrant families is going to be further complicated by the reality that immigrant folks aren't really coming to the large cities where they can get access to these services, consciousness, resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing folks in Wilmington, Minnesota, like three hours from the metro, and. Mm-hmm. They're out meatpacking plants in Wilmer, you know, four hours the other way. Sure. Uh, in in areas where there's not a lot of support or, or infrastructure to develop consciousness, to form a critical perspective, and to mm-hmm. find resilience and resistance to that as that analysis emerges. Sure. No, those those are big questions, like how to. And again, the the, the Chicano movement was a moment where people thought about how to engage 
that population, right? And bring them into, you know, a movement that was trying to solve these problems. Um, and I got my books based in San Diego. So it's a very urban space where, you know, uh, a lot of these folks are engaging each other. But um, yeah, it's a different kind of question to think in terms, in terms of rural places. Like you said, where a lot of migrant folks are. Like, how do you reach those folks? How do you develop a critical consciousness among these folks? Or, or, or again, maybe they already have it, but how do you, um, you give it organize a, it or, right. you know, give it a broader, broader platform and even right, just, right. just like solely just be aware, right? Like, mm-hmm. nobody in California, like, not nobody, but like a lot of folks in California don't know what those workplace conditions are in Wilmer right. and Wilmington. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I don't even really know either. I know there's a problem, but like, Sure. Part of my interest as a reporter is to go down there and get a feel for it and, right. and put that on a platform. Right. Because it is being overlooked. Right. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So, finding, I mean, I'm, I, I'm sure there's folks out there, you know, working on that and finding and dialogue with those folks is important. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. I think more needs to be done in terms, I think my book... Um, a challenge in writing the book was to find actual migrant voices. A lot of the voices are U.S. citizens or Mexican-Americans who mm-hmm. are grappling with the idea of immigrants, the idea of undocumented folks. So that's something in the future I'd like to, in f- you know, future work. Well, one, that I labored in the book to, to rescue and recover as much as I could. But in the future, like premising the voices of migrants themselves too, who have uh, you know, a whole array of ideas and disagree and with each other. And, you know, we think of the dream movement and like migrants themselves also um, navigate citizenship in a certain way and um, buy into sometimes the worthiness, I'm worthy of citizenship. Yeah. Um, rather I, than like this whole regime is needs to be abolished, you know. Yeah, and it certainly changes like the dynamic of that we were describing before of U.S. born kids that have a rejection and or defiance towards immigrant communities where and dreamers hold both. Right. They're U.S. born right. youth with a very specific immigrant narrative because they themselves are immigrants mm-hmm. becoming aware of it as adults. Right. There's they're in a very unique place that, you know, I just I'm not I'm a U.S. citizen. So I don't identify with that as closely. Sure. It's a completely sure. different historical experience. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, and they're real. Yeah, there's real material concerns. I guess they're that, not U.S. Right? born, right? Sorry, well, right. clarifying that. Yeah, right. not U.S. born. Primarily U.S. experience, right? But U.S. raised, but um, immigrants too. So yeah, kind of this like in between position where they're navigating citizenship because this is their home, right? And there are certain things at stake in terms of getting a job. Or I've had students, yeah, that don't know if they can get a job when they graduate college if they lose their DACA status. Um, so there's real material things at play. And so I hope the book um, is a way to introduce these ideas about how to navigate the system. Latinos have been criticizing the system since the 30s. So in a lot of ways, I feel like newer generation kind of immigrant rights movement folks um, It'd be useful to have a dialogue with them about the historical context yeah. Uh, yeah. that they're operating in, and they're young people, and like, so a dialogue with 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 elder activists, with 
historical ideas and events. Um, hopefully, we'll give the language and the um, be useful to them in their their struggles. Well, I, I think it's certainly. I mean, part of what it, part of like a big tone of my writing since the Trump election is that our heritage and our traditions aren't simply like tacos and tamales. Our heritage mm -hmm. and traditions, our defiance, our resistance, our militancy. Mm -hmm. Right. Our, our critical perspective, our intellectual responses to the oppression that our communities face, both in the United States and in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And that's where I want to lean to. And so whatever whatever available material there is that, that speaks to that uh, discovery of our heritage, not just as the things that white folks or, or sort of mm -hmm. white supremacy wants us to be aware of, is, is going to be significant for whatever rebellion defiance that we're trying to shape and form as we move forward. Right. Right. And I'm just thinking about, yeah, just our heritage is also political heritage and anti-colonial heritage right. in terms of we think of broader Latin America and um, the many colonial, you know, regimes and that are part of any of Mexican nationalism or any other kind of nationalism. Um, yeah, that's also heritage, a, a political lineage of this critical perspective of democratizing, democratizing the society in some way. So I, you know, I talk about like dreaming of a world without deportation i think mexican origin and broader latino latina activists have done that for you know more than half a century right. um tried to develop these alternative imaginings of what a world might look like in that regard and created them whether it was in the union hall where undocumented folks were included in the union included in the processes of um deciding what was at stake or whether it was the community group or the social service kind of organization that included them and helped and kind of um, put their voices, you know, first in terms of developing a solution to immigration. So the book ends with um, the Chicano National Conference on Immigration and then the Chicano National Tribunal on Immigration in 1980-1981. And I think those were places where they actually practiced uh, this, you know, cross-citizenship kind of uh, community where the voices of undocumented folks and the things that they had endured and the things that they saw that they needed were kind of put first in terms of creating a solution to mm -hmm. the immigration problem. Um, so I think that was a lot of their, of, of the goals of the groups in the, in the book was to um, be able to negotiate and be at the table in terms of solve, they they saw a problem with immigration. Obviously, they've seen it on a day to day basis. Well, and, and the added effect of expanding the analysis, right? right? Expanding the view, right, right. So right. In that regard, it was a critique of the state in terms of the state is not engaging the people most affected mm -hmm. by the process of immigration, right? Um, and so they were that was their ideas to include the folks most affected in in a, in a dialogue about the solutions to them to the problem. Hmm. Yeah, that is a good place to stop. Cool. Thanks, Jimmy. Thank you.